Alrighty then, hello again everybody. We have reconvened, as promised. I never let you down. I never waver. I never linger. I never dither. I always make sure we start our call-in sessions on time. Hello, Richard. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing okay. Um, Should we even pretend to indulge in some small talk, or should we just be uh, about the business like the serious guys that we are and dive right in? It's up to you, man. Completely indifferent between small talk and (laughs) serious talk. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well... You and I have both been reading this uh, Washington Post series on the uh, beginnings of the Ukraine war that seems like it's um, tied to the six-month mark of the war being launched. And uh, there's a new installment out this week, which basically goes into what is called the Battle for Kiev or how it is that the what seems to have been the initial Russian plan to seize and topple, uh, seize Kiev and topple the government, uh, faltered. And, um, I have one preliminary thought on that, but I want to just get your basic takeaway before I provide it. So what, what do you, what do you make of this latest installment in the Washington Post? I think it was, you know, interesting because it's, I, I was covering this stuff at the time uh, I was covering, I was watching, I mean, I was watching, following this stuff at the time. And um, You were was, a war correspondent in Kiev? <laughs> no, I wasn't that. I was a Twitter correspondent uh, <laughs> on my phone. Um, More impressive. I, uh, yeah, so I mean, the de- like, you don't get a lot of reporting that is actually just giving you, like, maps plus, like, like sort of what, I knew that uh, airport, like, I knew that airport home stall uh, was uh, important. I knew the Russians were there. Um, you know, I, I, the you know, the fact that the highway was cut off and then they had to go through this other city. And then I, I had heard about, you know, I heard about each of these things individually. I heard about the, um, uh, the flooding of the area, but I didn't realize how it was related to the, uh, to the airport. So I was, you know, I was grateful to, uh, have that, um, reporting. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I didn't have an impression like, oh, this is like some kind of BS. I mean, it's obviously all, it's all, in the, it's all done for the sake of, you know, uh, the narrative, but I, I didn't see anything, you know, ex, uh, particularly right. egregious or particularly uh, strange about the reporting. So I'm interested in what you think. Well, you know, um, one thing that does stick out, stick in my craw, uh, of this narrative is we've, and this relates to something that's been sticking in my craw now for six months is how it's just as fact that this plan I think you and I actually first time we had a joint uh, call-in session here um, <clears throat> but you know, for example just to sort of frame this particular article to frame the ensuing narrative that they're putting together here's what the Washington Post said and this is toward the, the very you know front end of the piece if the Russians could seize the seat of Paris or at least cause the government to flee in panic, the defense of the country would quickly unravel. Moscow could install a puppet government. That was the Kremlin's plan. 
Now, if you're just going to assert as a matter of factual to factual certainty that this was, quote, the Kremlin's plan, all I'm asking gotten so far, what I've gotten, including from this article, unless I'm misreading it, is just, you know, layers of inference as to what the Kremlin's plan, quote-unquote, was. And I don't deny that it's plausible that what the Washington Post asserts here was, in fact, the Kremlin's plan, but I do sort of bristle when I see stuff asserted so flatly and unambiguously without any real accompanying hard evidence, because, of course, the you know Russians did not cooperate, presumably, in the reporting of this series of articles. I mean, it's sort of funny. At least they, the Washington Post makes sure to say that like the Kremlin did not respond to a request for comment as though like an email in Dmitry Peskov's uh, inbox was not returned. Um, but but, but the, there are like other... So it's plausible that what the Washington Post asserts here is the, was Putin's plan or the Kremlin's plan was in fact his plan. But there are also other semi-plausible explanations for the plan that aren't even entertained as even potentially accurate. So, you know, there's this blog, Mood of Alabama. I don't know, Richard, if you follow them, but I do on occasion. I've seen them, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, I have quibbles with... Cutting in and out. Like, you're cutting in and out. You're cutting in and out, Mike. Somebody in the comments is saying the same thing. Yeah, you're cutting in for me and apparently somebody in the audience. Okay, Um, is this any better? It is, yeah. Okay, let me. Uh, it's better now. Okay, sorry. Uh, let let me know if I'm uh, if I'm continuing to cut it out. Um, Michael, are you still there? Because we don't hear you. Michael, Michael. Narrative at as to the war's trajectory. Michael, you you, is, you were just you 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 you'd been you, we hadn't heard you. We you would cut off for like a minute, and then you just came back. Now, not a minute, probably like twenty five seconds. Um, so you have to start over. I didn't get anything since since you started talking. Oh, really? Okay. Um, okay, and it's okay now. It's okay now. Yeah, you said it's okay, and then we said it's okay, but then it would then you went completely out, um, and then I was trying to tell you, but apparently you didn't hear me. So I mean, I'll I'll say something if. Uh, I don't hear you. But okay, yeah, you R- Richard. You. Richard, you just you just talk for a minute. Let me let me let me fiddle with my for a second and see if I can fix the connection problem. Okay. Okay. Um, so the uh, so yeah, I mean the idea. I think there's you know I think what they're doing here is that they they believe in American intelligence sources. Um, they think they're honest and they think they know what they're talking about. Some you know this is what they're telling them as far as. Uh, what the Kremlin plan is. Um, I'd like to, I'd be interested hearing what mood of Alabama's theory is. I think the idea that they weren't trying to take Kiev, I, I don't, I just don't think that's credible. Uh, whether they would install somebody or they would do something else. I don't know exactly what they, what they would do. Um, but yeah, like there, there is a possibility that like, you know, the, the Washington Post reporters have seen the intelligence or something close to it. And there's like, you know, there's a good reason to think this. Because the other option besides they're going to install somebody is what? They're going to force Zelensky to uh, do something else or they're going to um, 
or they're going to, uh, you know, annex Ukraine. I guess you could you could do that if you uh, seize Kiev, which makes the Russians look worse. So uh, it's actually I think there's of the plausible theories they're going to install a new leader is actually the least, um, uh, you know, the least sort of suspicious of Russian motivations. So I don't know. I did. I didn't. I don't see it the way. Uh, you do, but you know, explain to me about that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, so I just changed my connection. Is that any better? It's. I mean, it's the same. It's the same. The question is, is it going to cut off? Okay. Um, hopefully, it doesn't cut off. Well, okay. So, uh, what I said before my connection dropped out was that from the outset of the war, one thing that has has annoyed me on an empirical level are these just flat assertions that Putin's plan, quote-unquote, was X, Y, and Z. Because when you assert that Putin's plan or the Kremlin's plan was something, then I would expect at least some evidence showing that this is what Putin's plan was. And I don't deny that the thrust of what the Washington Post outlines here as to what Putin's plan allegedly was in terms of that initial phase of the invasion is plausible. Yeah, it is plausible given their seeming incursion to the perimeter of Kiev in hopes of potentially toppling the government or seizing the city. Yeah, that makes sense as a plausible explanation for what the, quote, plan was. But there's actually no evidence presented that this was the plan. What is presented is kind of layers of inference, which is what, uh, as the basis, the evidentiary basis for these claims. Um, And you know, even if you read these Washington Post articles, they have, have sort of a funny aside where, where they'll say, you know, the Kremlin did not respond to a request for comment um, as though they expected that it's the Kremlin, uh, Kremlin, you know, press team was going to cordially engage with the Washington Post to make sure they have their facts right or something. Um, but nonetheless, you know, although it is plausible that Putin's plan for the initial phase of the invasion was as the Washington Post asserts it to be. There are at least other potential explanations that are at least worth entertaining. And, you know, Moon of Alabama, this blog, which has, I don't want to say a pro-Russian bent, but is kind of more toward that end of the spectrum fairly consistently. And I have some quibbles with their analysis in certain respects because, in the run-up to the war, they made certain overly definitive statements that there would be no invasion and so on. So, But, you know, that's neither here nor there. At least what they say in terms of re- uh, reacting to the Washington Post article is that um, it's entirely plausible that Russia did not intend to seize Kiev at all. Rather, what they wanted to do, at least according to the rendering of the Mo- of Moon of Alabama, who you can take with a grain of salt, fine. Uh, but they said that the option was, what the tactic was, was to basically surround Kiev as a bargaining tactic to, you know, basically foment some kind of coup or at least extract certain major concessions as to NATO membership, meaning an affirmation of formal neutrality or something to that effect. And Moon of Alabama says that you know, based on public reporting, and there have well, there was this reporting at the time. Uh, those uh, ceasefire negotiations mediated by Turkey that stretched into March, they actually at various points did um, produce offers on the part of the Ukraine side to actually formalize their neutral status militarily, and you know, pledge in writing or in some kind of 
you know, official agreement not to seek NATO, NATO membership. And the idea was that the presence of Russian forces encircling Kiev was supposed to accelerate their Ukraine's um, willingness to accede to those particular demands. Or in other words, the idea was never to topple the government in Kiev or, or invade it or, or seize it or occupy it. It was to bolster Russia's hand at extracting these concessions from Ukraine. Um, and then, you know, then in the early April, um, you know, you had this incident around uh, Buka and you had uh, Boris Johnson traveling to Kiev to meet with Zelensky for the first time. Uh, any leader, any other, any world leader had gone to Ukraine since the beginning of the war, seemingly with Biden's blessing. And there are, you know, Ukrainian sources who reported that Johnson delivered to Zelensky the message that he must not make any major concessions to Kiev and, you know, Western military support would be, you know, basically indefinite and the war had to, had to be won militarily on the battlefield and that uh, basically if concessions were made, then, uh, you know, Johnson and Biden anyway would be, you know, perturbed and might think twice about continuing to furnish uh, weaponry to Ukraine at the rate that they had been. Um, so I don't know if that's the true story either. I'm just saying that at least in terms of what is evidentiarily available to assess what the quote plan was or the, to, to assess quote what Putin's you know strategy was, there, there are competing theories that make it at least seem to me that it's not warranted to just so flatly and definitively assert that Putin's plan was this version of it, like the most maximalist version where they were seeking to, you know, inv uh, invade Kiev, topple the government by force, and, you know, basically seize the governing apparatus of the, the entire country. So, you know, with the dearth of information available to us and all that with all that that's really available to us being these sort of officially crafted narratives that are meant to be most charitable and flattering to you know, the Western quote unquote intelligence services and to the you know the gritty determination of Ukraine and both in terms of the Zelensky's administration and also the the people and of course that's a component I don't doubt at all um, but I, I just think that the the overly overly definitive posture of the way that things are asserted has always rubbed me the wrong way and continues to because it seems to be more it, it always struck me more as an attempt at myth making or you know to creating an official mythology rather than you know accurately ascertaining and presenting the factual record so i mean there's two problems with this idea so i i the idea that they wanted to circle uh, Kiev and not uh, take it. Okay. First of all, there's other reporting in the Washington Post series, and you can believe it or not, but this is reporting that the Washington Post claims it has. Um, that basically, you know, the earlier uh, reports in the series, or may maybe it was the last, was it the Battle of the Kiev one? I think it was the earlier ones, um, but it was somewhere in there where they say they have basically the um, intercepts of these people in the F FSB who are like renting up, who are getting ready to take over apartments in Kiev, right? Yeah, so yeah. Believe that. That, you could believe that or not. So they believe their own reporting, obviously. So if, if that's their reporting, um, then, you know, they thought that they were going to be in the city at, at some point, right? Um, the other thing is, it doesn't make sense on its own terms, because, like, 
how do you know the government doesn't collapse, right? You go to you go to the outskirts of the city, you surround them. Like people thought Zelensky was weak, so you have to prepare for the situation where they do collapse. Like, and, and so what if what if they do collapse and like Zelensky flees, right? It's a possibility that the human the government flees. There's nobody there. Uh, then what do you do, right? So so uh, Russia, I mean, it could have easily caused an, an uh, could have caused anarchy. It could have easily led to the collapse of the government. It did it, but the idea that like Russia could have planned it perfectly that it was going to circle Kiev, get all these concessions, but the government wouldn't topple. Like, I think that's, that's probably not realistic to think that wasn't, that's what their plan was. But wasn't it all, always the case? And analysts said this at the time, including that guy, Michael Kaufman, right? Who was, you know, in, in broad terms, correct in a lot of his predictions as to the timing of the war's commencement and so on. But even he said that it's simply not credible to, believe that Russia even has the number of forces amassed that would be required to execute a successful um, siege of Kiev, right? So well, that's, they, that's, that's why it didn't work. I mean, that's why they got, that's why it didn't work. That's what they would say. Yeah. Right. But so, so, so we're to believe that even though it was obvious to everyone that there were not nearly enough forces amassed to actually besiege Kiev, that that was nonetheless the, obviously the plan. I mean, they well, that, well, that, they so that so, we're, we're, so they wrongly believe they had enough soldiers. I think I think the idea is this is the this is fits with the uh, the other thing is that they they thought that they would have help that there were people within uh, they would be welcome basically this is basically welcomed as liberators um, and then they would have people basically on the inside there was there was also part of the Washington Post report that there was all these spies within Ukraine and maybe Russia didn't have an accurate portrayal of what was you know what could happen they thought maybe they had you know better access to the highest levels of intelligence so that would make sense right you would send it uh, not that big of a true presence in. Um, you expect it to be pretty easy. The government would be knocked off. That would that would make sense. You know, but the idea that they didn't want to take it because they didn't have because that doesn't help because they didn't have enough troops. That doesn't help because you still had to like take all this territory just to get to get to Kiev, right? You had to like you, if you look at these counter, uh, you know, these co- counterinsurgency sort of calculations. They had nowhere near the troops just to you know take over what they should have. So they screwed up somehow, um, unquestionably. Um, and the question just is how. Yeah, maybe so. Again, I guess just from an empirical standpoint, I I would like – presumably there is hard, tangible evidence that exists somewhere that we could see and evaluate for ourselves beyond just the Washington Post saying we have have intercepts um, showing that this was the plan from the – coming down from the highest echelons of the – Russian governing apparatus, like uh, an FSB guy saying that he was going to get an apartment in Kiev. I mean, that's not really dispositive proof of the overarching war plan, right? I mean, it could just be one guy who's kind of a doofus thinking that he's going to get an apartment sometimes. I don't know. The point is that there's a lot of ambiguity or there's a, there, there's an inco- a, 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 a very incomplete factual or evidentiary record. And so it just seems – not warranted on, on because of that to make these overly definitive statements. Yeah, you can fear. I mean, you 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 lay out a plausible case, a plausible case yourself that this was the actual plan, but the Washington Post just states it as fact, and yes. and that's what I, I I find sort of annoying. 
Yeah, you have to. I mean, you just have to <laughs> you either trust them or you don't. I mean, these you know, they they I think they think that they have the reporting to them. They have they have the evidence. I mean, this is what the U.S. government thinks or what the U.S. government wants people to think. And, you know, the Washington, they have their journalistic standards. And this is the kind of thing that, yeah, they don't they don't present the evidence to us on. But, you know, I, I don't think it's on its face absurd. And then you just have to, you know, either buy it or not. Yeah. Or you can take like, not to use a pretentious term, but you can take like a posture of epistemic humility and say that, you know, well, sort of weigh sort of countervailing explanations that have varying degrees of plausibility and just not assume that you know with certitude one way or another in the absence of more dispositive evidence. At least that, that's like the basically what my perspective is. But anyway, there, there was a, sort of another interesting uh, development I'm sure you saw where apparently Putin, Putin ordered uh, Russia to increase the overall size of its active duty military by something like 130,000 troops with an eye toward apparently um, the war dragging on for the foreseeable future, even into you know next year. Um, and the prolongation of the war seems to be confirmed now by a variety of different like indicia for example you know biden announced this latest tranche of military quote-unquote aid i hate using that term it's so euphemistic aid like it's you know the first aid kits or something um but he's sending more he sent the largest tranche of u.s military aid to ukraine thus far in the war this week almost at totaling at $3 billion. And apparently a lot of the systems included in this batch of aid are like about long-term readiness for Ukraine. Or in other words, they're not like weaponry that's slated to be used immediately to fend off the latest Russian advance or something, right? It's like about erecting, you know, over the course of months or even years, new, uh, you know, missile defense systems and that kind of thing, which kind of, Seems, which seems to indicate that both sides are preparing for a much longer haul war than might have been assumed a few months ago. Yeah, Russia's shortages in manpower, and they're doing something about that. I mean, there's the people who smart people who watch us say it's not uh, clear exactly how they do this, but they're going to add, you know, a hundred, hundred something thousand, uh, which increases the um, the military. Um, the men under arms by you know something like ten percent, um, and then the Ukraine thing. I mean, the the, the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal report today is like they're going to give it a name, so they're going to call it Operation, you know, whatever, Defend Freedom or something like that, like <laughs> Enduring Freedom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was Iraq. Yeah, Enduring Freedom. Yeah, Operation. What was Afghanistan? It was um, Operation uh, uh, Enduring. Was it Hope or something? Was something having to do with Hope? Uh, oh, maybe actually, maybe Afghanistan was enduring yeah, freedom. Yeah. Iraq was um, it was something something liberation. I have to look it up. It's so stupid. Operation yeah. uh, was it just Operation Freedom? Uh, Iraq War. It was called uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah, that, that's what. It was yeah, called. Iraqi Freedom. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Afghanistan, yeah. I think, was enduring freedom. Maybe this will be, yeah. be Ukrainian for Operation Ukraine. No, yeah. it's, it's going to be much bigger than that. It's going to be Western defense of Western civilization or or democracy. Operation Defend Democracy or something like that. Uh, so it's going to get a name, which is like you know something you usually do for a war. It's going to get a top general. 
um, who's going to be over overseeing it. Um, so, I mean, it's what it's a confirmation of sort of what we knew that neither side, I mean, neither side is going to is planning on this thing being over anytime soon. Um, and we just sort of have to see what the next phase is. I mean, whether Ukraine's uh, uh, whether Ukraine's um, you know weapons coming from the U.S. or Russia's uh, uh, Russia's uh, you know, increasing bad power, like what actually matters more here? And we have no idea. I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's a tragedy, but it's sort of like exciting because, you know, you have a war and like you have these different strengths and different weaknesses and you really don't know what's going to happen. So um, it's tragic, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I, I don't even know. I don't know which way this is going to go. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't have the self-awareness to admit that they are exhilarated by the existence of, of a war with uncertain outcomes like it's kind of crass to admit that as though like you because you can be twisted as though like you want the war to happen or that you derive pleasure in it and that might not reflect so nicely on you but i mean it's hard to deny that a lot of people do get a lot of meaning in their lives from being like hyper scrupulous and following every little minute development in the war. I remember like when the war first started, every guy on the internet was like super into maps and super into, you know, delineating the latest, um, you know, incursions through yeah. these maps of Ukraine. They were learning all these names of new cities and stuff. And it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a pretty exciting hobby. And of course, I don't want to trivialize the death and destruction. Iraq, but do you remember the day that the heavy days of the Iraq War when it was sort of like this? People were like, "Oh man, Fallujah, oh Ramadi, oh man, we're gonna hold Baghdad." Do you remember? We didn't have Twitter back then. Um, you know, I, I I obviously remember it, but you know, I mostly just consumed it by watching TV. So it wasn't as though I could get into like the nitty gritty of like the exact coordinates of troop movements and that kind of thing that all these open source intelligence guys now have, uh, you know, mastered. I think a lot of them are kind of not entirely credible, but like that, at least it's, it's, it's become this cottage industry. I do, I do have actually a vivid memory of when the Afghanistan war launched and where everybody, where there was, there was like this national initiative to, teach the population of the United States all these obscure names of Afghan cities, like, of course, Kabul, but like Kandahar and all these places that, uh, you know, less than, you know, one-tenth of one percent of Americans probably had ever even known existed before, but now, like, they're all experts on, this, on the geography of this obscure part of South Asia. Yeah, I don't remember the Afghan, I mean... I or Central Asia, rather. Yeah, I was a little bit. I was a little bit. Uh, I think I was maybe too young to think that to, to be paying that close attention. So Iraq was a few years later, and Iraq is sort of like a real, you know, it's sort of like a real country with like roads and cities. While Afghanistan uh, never was, so I think it was more of that like uh, urban warfare, like cold. Where Afghanistan, it's like so obscure, it was like hard to even uh, know what was going on. Um, but yeah, I, do you still see these map guys? I mean, this was like I think it's, I think it's uh, that has died down a lot. I mean, yeah, it's, it's died down. Stalemated. It's died um, down a bit, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so, I mean, we're going to see what there's a guy, um, I, there was a good, if you want, like, the optimistic case for Ukraine, like, who knows what, what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong, but there's uh, there, something called the Rackman Review, it's, it's a Financial Times foreign, uh, uh, foreign Affairs uh, reporter, he interviewed a guy um, named, uh, let me see what the guy's name is, his name is uh, Philip O'Brien, so this guy's like, you know, just pro-Ukraine, but seems to know what he's 
talking about, and he thinks you know Ukraine is. Yeah, is getting isn't he, he's an isn't he like an he's I he's I know I've seen him on Twitter. I think isn't he like some international relations guy in Scotland or something? Yeah, something. Yeah, professor of strategic studies at University of Stanford, Scotland. Scotland yeah. What the hell is strategic studies? I'm sorry, all these perf- like. Pr- Professional security degrees that are now conferred by these universities just makes me reflexively skeptical that it's anything but like at least ninety percent BS. Oh, it's yeah, it's ninety nine percent BS. Yeah, of course you don't need the names. You don't need the names to tell you that. Yeah, security studies. I mean, like if you look at like the military, like the military produces so much documentation, and so like every guy who graduates from like you know what they're taught, you know they're uh, like they have all these programs. They have masters, theses, you know they have PhD dissertations, and I've read I've read some of them. I used to look into like the court counterinsurgency doctrine and. You know, sometimes they're good, but usually they're not very good. It's just, you know, it's just like the same, they're writing the same thing over there. I'm going to declare myself an expert in strategic studies. And there's really no way to dispute that because, like, there's no criteria at all for what the hell even constitutes strategic studies, except if you're in one of these, like, newly formed professional cliques where they, you know, have elevated this as some kind of academic field. Well, I, um, yeah, I, I submitted a, uh, article to a journal called security studies one so i almost was a i have i think i have one in journal i think i did publish one in journal of strategic studies so i am an expert in strategic studies. <laughs> okay well yeah. i i'm in awe of you um <laughs> thank you so yeah, yeah it's uh we're, we're gonna we're gonna see what, like the, the moment ukraine takes like it, it's not hard it's like what this seems to be you know, we might be in a situation where this just really favors the defense. Like, if you're defending territory, it's just a lot, you know, because Russia just basically took uh, this big chunk of territory, like, right away within the first, you know, few weeks. Um, and then Ukraine never took anything back. And then Russia has made very, very small gains since then, right? Um, so, you know, it's an open question whether, like, anybody can really make gains. Um, well, well, they, well, well, but after the first phase of the war, right, when it became more of this, you know, war of attrition and artillery... Uh, fire in in the east. They did take the whole of Luhansk by July, right? So that's not trivial. It's not. Uh, it's not. I mean, it is sort of. None of those were like the biggest city. You know, they were pretty small. Uh, it was pretty small areas population. They had the population centers of Luhansk already, and there was uh, you know a few others. I think one of them was was like a hundred thousand people before the war. So it's like you know these aren't like the top you know. 20 or 50 cities in in ukraine uh, so they're they're not huge urban centers they did you know they did take some you're right that took you know months and it took a lot of uh shelling and they're still trying to get donetsk and you know it's basically basically been frozen i mean besides that that uh just cleaning up the luhansk uh thing uh so we'll you know we'll see it might just be it might just be too hard for anybody to advance um or it might not you know we could be we could be surprised we just don't know yeah uh, switching focus a bit, you know, one thing that I'm interested in because I can't, I'm not in Ukraine to evaluate the minutia of the uh, territorial changes, you know, one way or another. Um, but what I am in something of a position to evaluate are the changes amongst the political attitudes towards this uh, issue, especially among elected officials. And I'm curious how, if at all, the midterm elections could affect U.S. Um, policy vis-a-vis Ukraine. Because I guess the conventional wisdom would be if the Republicans take the House uh, and or the Senate, 
it's going to be at least marginally more difficult for uh, Biden to get through another, you know, tens of billions of dollar package in Ukraine war funding. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to doubt that even if the Republicans did take the Congress, that it would somehow be impossible for Biden to get this through because it's not like Republicans taking Congress is going to necessarily mean a gigantic influx of people who have some kind of ideological aversion to you know, American military hegemony or something or even necessarily even more narrowly have an opposition to the current proxy war policy. Um, but, uh, you know, on in, in terms of the potential new Republican elected officials who may or may not get elected in November, I, I wanted to kind of take it back to, unfortunately, Trump. And I only say unfortunate because it's such a reflexive topic to return to incessantly. And in other contexts, I tend to ridicule it as this sort of knee-jerk uh, obsession on the part of the media class. But occasionally, it's it's warranted to, to talk about. And because uh, you and I had um, maybe somewhat briefly talked about this in the past, but this idea that, you know, is, is there any legitimacy to Democratic Party, you know, official talking points that the empowerment of Republicans in this midterm cycle is going to be the death knell for democracy, right? Because they're going to try to, you know, uh, seize the reins of like the election administration apparatus in different states and or they're going to concoct schemes within the Congress to, you know, veto election results of the next presidential election or uh, what have you. And, I, you know, just before we uh, logged on tonight, I saw a new quote from Biden where um, – Biden saying that, uh, you know, democracy is literally on the ballot again, you know, or something to that effect. Hold on. I have the exact quote. Um, quote, Biden says, uh, Donald Trump is not just a former president. He is a defeated former president. It's not hyperbole. Now you need to vote to literally save democracy again. Hmm. So apparently every election in the United States from here on out is going to be about, quote, literally saving democracy. And it's not going to be hyper, hyperbole, according to the people advancing that argument. It's going to be the actual truth, because that was that was basically the uh, thrust of the argument in 2020 as well. But you know, apparently, you know, because Republicans still exist, that threat to the existential viability of democracy is still with us. Um, and I'm sort of curious uh, if you and I, who I think are probably more just intuitively skeptical of those more histrionic assertions maybe could try to like steel man what the case is for it because you know for one thing at least on the gubernatorial level um in uh, in the in five of the six states that in 2020 that were the most decisive in the electoral college so uh, georgia nevada michigan wisconsin pennsylvania and what am i missing arizona uh, in five of those six states the gubernatorial candidate endorsed by Trump for the Republican nomination has won the nomination and is going to be the general election candidate, right? <clears throat> and uh, some of those candidates are very vehement in their apparent desire to have as one of their main agenda items 
changing election administration so as to supposedly, you know, rectify the wrongs that were committed in 2020 that deprived Trump of victory. Most, you know, notably like this guy, Doug Mastriano in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, but when we last talked, you know, Mastriano was one of the, you know, had, had just won his primary. But now we have five of the six states that are most, that are probably going to be the most electorally crucial in 2024, uh, that potentially having Republican governors who are more aligned with Trump on this set of issues. Um, so, you know, in light of that, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, like, do you give any credence to these sort of standard fair claims from Democrats that, you know, these midterms are the most important ever because, you know, insurrectionist Republicans are going to you know, upend the, entire, the, entire, the country's entire election system? It's, you know, we really are in uncharted territory. I don't know. Like, you could imagine, you know, it's not impossible to imagine that these guys who run on, you know, are run on the platform, that elections, you know, are fake and, you know, 2020 was stolen. And, like, that's, you know, that's Trump's, like, main issue. And, like, that's what the party is being convulsed over. It's not impossible to imagine um, that they would, you know, that they would basically just throw out the results of the election and then give it to Trump. I mean, that's not impossible to imagine if it's Trump in 2024. Um, you know, at the same time, like, it's like, it's hard, you know, it's, it's like, you have to, you have to have a close, I think you have to have a close election for this to be plausible. Um, you have to have it matter um, that, you know, this it's going to have to come down to that uh, state, you know, the, uh, most, you know, the governor doesn't do it. You need to go to the state legislature, go, go along with it. I mean, the state legislatures are not all Trumpists. Um, there's other people like secretaries of state and stuff that Trump have, you know, Trump has been going into those elections and trying to select people on the same criteria. So, you know, is it, is it possible that they just decide, you know, they just want to, they don't, don't want to pay attention to the voting and just give it to Trump? It's possible. Um, it's not the most likely thing in the world, but yeah, I wouldn't dismiss it as crazy either. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't dismiss it as you know inconceivable either, but there is something very tedious and you know sort of almost mind numbing about this never ending refrain that Republicans aren't merely going to institute policies that you know we them the Democrats dislike, but they're going to crater democracy as we know it. I mean, it's just it's basically almost this blackmail tactic to convince. You know, disenchanted Democrats that whenever problems or whatever criticisms or however uh, unfulfilled they may be by Biden's tenure so far, none of that matters ultimately because it's, uh, what's on the line is like the fate of our republic. I just find you know that highfalutin, you know, self righteous rhetoric really really grating. Well, that, even if there is a, even any... if there is a kernel for, of truth to it. Yeah. Well, they, they, it's not like they present something other than, yeah, trying to emotionally blackmail you uh, into um, voting for Democrats, right? It's like you could like, okay, people don't trust the elections. Like there are some things you can do. Like why is it like in some countries like they can count the votes like within, you know, like, you know, right away, right after the polls are closing. Like why is there even no effort of like liberals to try to make a competent government that can actually, you know, uh, count votes easier. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's like even liberals are like know that like American government isn't very good at stuff in these localities, especially you know at the state level in these inner cities, like are not going to be able to do this well. Um, but you know the fact that they don't even 
try like why do we have to put up with this like why is it like you know any any company like they have their sales data they have their data on what's going on like automatically and we have to wait you know like sometimes you know days or you know all night or days or weeks to get the election uh results i mean they get their post stuff like voter id i mean that's not conducive to trust they treat they treat like voter id like it's like jim crow and like you know pretty much like most countries or all democracies you know in some form have uh uh, photo ID, just like liberals in the American context have like decided that's like racist and white supremacy. Well, they uh, gave up on that recently, funnily enough. Like five years ago, it was Jim Crow when it was. Well, they, that's because they yeah. lost the Supreme. That's the Supreme. That's the courts. Yeah. The courts have let the Republican states do what they want, and before they could get the courts to just throw it out, um, and they can't really do that anymore. So I, you know, I, I think that these voter ID laws, I, I think, are there to stay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but there's no, I mean, there's no, just, there's no, like, I mean, I, I know that, like, uh, there's people who will say the election is stolen no matter what, but, like, you know, like, like people have questions and they have concerns, um, and it's just, they, they don't want to address them at all. They want this as an issue to sort of beat the Republicans over the head with. Yeah, you know, I was in Paris in April on the day of the presidential election, and I went and looked at a voting site just to see how it worked. And I knew this in principle because I had, you know, researched how French presidential elections work, but to see it in person was sort of striking because just in it just in its utter simplicity and how foreign a concept it is for many Americans. Because when you go into a French voting precinct, literally you walk up to a table and there are uh, two sheets of paper that are handed to each voter. One had, had the name of Emmanuel Macron on it. The other had the name of Marine Le Pen on it. And then you take both pe- pieces of paper into the voting booth. You put the piece of paper of the candidate that you want to vote for into the designated box, and you discard the other one, and then you just walk out. Yeah, Michael, go back. Go back. I, I lost you. I, I got oh. blogged out of the app. Tell me what was what. Okay, so you tell oh, me sorry. You, the French thing, just how it works. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I mean, in in France, it's entirely a paper ballot system, and it was amazing just in its sheer simplicity. And it shouldn't have been amazing to me as an American because this should, in theory, be totally available to everyone who votes in the United States, but somehow isn't because we've chosen to like overcomplicate everything and outsource voting systems to private firms like Diebold and all these these companies. Uh, but you walk into the French voting precinct, as I did in, in Paris in April during the election, and basically all you do is you you, you sign in, very very uh, straightforward process. They, you're presented two sheets of paper. One has the name of Emmanuel Macron on it. One has the name of Marine Le Pen on it. You then walk into you know, the privacy booth. You put the piece of paper with your choice of a candidate into the designated box and you discard the other piece of paper and you walk out. And then they have the election results. You know, this is a large country. I mean, France is what, uh, 70 million people or something? Um, and then you walk out and they have election results within like an hour or two on election night. And somehow this is just totally inconceivable for the U.S. to really institute. Well, do they, just have the, the, well, do they have the presidential runoff? It's just Macron and uh, 
it's Macron and Le Pen. So it's the, they don't have any. That was the runoff, right? So they yeah, this was the runoff on the ballot. So you couldn't right. have because you have all these things you vote for in the U.S. election. You have Congress, but you have all this stuff on the same ballot. Uh, but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you, you can't expect the exact same thing because France is a centralized system where the government can just say it's going to be this one yeah. way while the elections are you know locally run uh, in the U.S. But like it doesn't. That's not an excuse. Like because like sometimes states like there's reform movements that go state to state and say, you know, this is sort of the best practice, and then they adopt it, right? It doesn't have to be uh, centralized, but there's there's no effort with that at all. It's just like, it's like and, you know, like, it's like no IDs, like, drop off anything. It's just like, there's no, like, there's like, it's like offensive to them to have any kind of, you know, quality control or uh, skepticism, like an idea that anyone would, like, ever, like, cheat at an election or anybody would vote illegally. It's just like they refuse to even think it, which is just, you know, which is crazy. And there are a couple of ironies here because, first of all, after the 2000 election, not that I was a politically engaged adult at the time, but I know enough about the 2000 election and its aftermath to know that there was a push led largely by liberals, um, but then it became a bipartisan push to uh, you know, improve voting infrastructure in the United States such that you wouldn't get a situation like the recount in Florida where you had comical images of, you know, these election counters looking through a magnifying glass at a ballot to look at whether, you know, somebody punched the right hole. Um, but because that particular paper ballot system was seen as ineffective at the time, this um, this uh, federal reform that was then enacted post two thousand, actually under Bush, it was mostly bipartisan. It kind of hastened this tr- uh, trend toward electronic voting systems, where you know there's not a paper trail, where stuff is just in a memory card. I mean, for, for the longest time, where I voted in New Jersey, you got no paper record whatsoever. You just pressed a pressed like a light up button on this screen. And then, you know, punched in your vote and then that was it. You just had to like take on faith that it was going to be, you know, uh, transmitted properly through the, this computerized system. Um, so, you know, in the past, actually, it has been more of a democratically oriented issue to want to, uh, you know, improve Americans' confidence in the legitimacy of their uh, voting systems. But now it's sort of coded – in the opposite direction. I, if, if anything, it just shows you the arbitrariness of how these issues sort of morph over time in terms of like their partisan inflection. Um, and, and, and one thing that always got, struck me as most weird was in 2020, Republicans complaining about this thing called ballot harvesting. That was automatically assumed to be like some how maliciously right wing as well, like on an intrinsic level. Whereas you could make plenty of counter arguments that, you know, Republicans could, quote, harvest ballots by, you know, manipulating or coercing vulnerable communities, like people in nursing homes, people who have, um, you know, mental deficiencies of one kind or another. And if you don't have a chain of custody, and if anybody's just allowed to gather as many ballots as they want and just dump them off into some collection spot, then, you know, that seems pretty obviously rife, uh, ripe for abuse. And in fact, what, uh, there was an election that was invalidated in the 2018 midterm cycle uh, for Congress because the Republican candidate actually who had won initially 
Um, he was credibly accused, and then it was substantiated factually by various like judicial and law enforcement interventions that he actually had engaged in illegal ballot harvesting. That's how he won the election by through election fraud. Um, so it's it, it's not inherently a partisan issue, and yet it's become coded as one. So there's like no compromise apparently available because if you even if you like roll back by ten percent some of the liberalization of election laws that was instituted in relation to COVID, that's somehow, you know, Jim Crow. Yeah. The, yeah. That was, that was actually, yeah, that was a funny irony. I think people have a sense that like liberals are the people who have the most activists and like, so activists are the kind of people who are likely to go around like community community and like, you know, just, you know, get a bunch of ballots and, and, uh, you know, just, just mark them off. I, you know, just anecdotally. So I was at the university of Chicago law school, um, uh, in Hyde Park, and so you know, it's, it's in the American, you know, it's a it's a black inner city, you know, probably hundred percent votes for Obama. Uh, but my, I was there in two thousand twelve, and then my friends uh, said his wife went to the election uh, to vote, and she said her market her ballot was pre marked for Obama. So like the idea was like in this area in Chicago, like you know, the local people are the election, and they just mark it for Obama. Like that's just like if they give it to you, you just vote. Um, so you know, that's not you know crazy that that stuff goes on. Who's gonna who's gonna object to that in inner city uh, Chicago, right? Um, so yeah, there's um, you know there's uh, you know there's I think there's these. These are some of the things. It's like Democrats have these urban areas where it's like 100 percent Democratic vote, and you know they worry about corruption. Those people, those you know, those areas are also very slow, and so that become that, you know they're just incompetent, you know, government wise, you know, in a lot of area, a lot of areas in these inner cities, um, and so they are always the ones last to report. So that also looks sort of suspicious. <clears throat> to people but you know it should be like easy to just get together and say like how are we going to accurately count the votes right i mean that shouldn't be like going to the moon or something but you know no, there's there's no effort to do that yeah and you know one final point on this and then we'll go to the callers but uh, you know i've i've mentioned this statistic a million times so sorry if i'm beating a dead horse but it really is amazing and it continues to be relevant uh which is that uh, two years after the presidential election in 2016, YouGov found that a supermajority of Democratic voters, right, so 68%, I think it was, um, believed not just that Russia interfered or, you know, they lightly tried to sow dissension within the American populace or they did some Facebook ads or Twitter trolls or whatever. They didn't just believe that. They believe that Russia literally tampered with the voting okay, machines. Uh, yeah, I, of course, I've seen that. Okay, now let's try a poll. Let's say, did the Chinese interfere in the U.S. election to give the you know, election to Biden in 2020? Ask Republicans that. I wonder what they would say. I mean, I wonder what it would actually be. I might not. Yeah, it probably be over a half. Uh, but I, I only mention that to say that. You know, there should be some bipartisan agreement on the need to fortify the election infrastructure, given how common it seemingly is for huge swaths of each party's base, depending on the outcome of any given election, to believe that it was fraudulent or so wildly tampered with that it lacks any, you know, the results lack any veracity. Um, but I don't know. Apparently, apparently not. It's just uh, it's just a pendulum swinging back and forth. Uh, depending on like what what the particular circumstances of a given election uh, portended for you know that year's winner. So since Biden was the winner, now I mean Democrats want to like just preserve whatever the existing status quo was, 
Um, whereas in 2016, there were a lot of efforts to like try to say, you know, we need to, you know, strengthen our, you know, ne- computer networks to, you know, ward off, you know, foreign it's, hackers it's and all this kind of thing. Much, but that died it's off. It's just funny how much it's become like so central to Republican politics and like how, how like clearly it's just driven by like the personal grievances of Donald Trump. Just the fact that like he happened to lose an election and how like elections are fake is like the entire, you know, like the most important thing in like Republican primaries. I just think that's funny. That's clearly, you know, that's driving it down. Democrats won't, won't ever acknowledge there's any voter fraud, no matter what. And Republicans are going to think, you know, every election is rigged forever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's go to some callers. Uh, Matt, you're up. Yeah. Well, can you hear me? Yes. Yep. What's going on, guys? Oh, I just want to Thanks. say, after 422 days, uh, Customs got around and looked at, looked at my fiance's application. So now we're just waiting for the uh, for the embassy interview. Ah, there that's you go. The story, dude. Mr. Romania, days. right? Yeah, yeah. 422 <laughs> days, dude. It took these – because they, they're public sector union, and they take all these breaks because of COVID. It's insane. It's just wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like, dude, four to twenty-two days to look at the application. This is not like judging her well, or like, <laughs> our relationship. Like, it's just to like stamp it. Yeah. Well, I mean, COVID slowed down every conceivable process that any public, or even in some cases private sector, like administrator, would have to deal with, even if it had not the remotest connection to any sort of, you know epidemiologically verified, you know, viral spread. It was just like everybody just slowed down in general for, for COVID. I guess you're, you're, still, you're dealing with the lag of it now, but, I, uh, you know, congrats finally, 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 uh, yeah. turning around. We'll be back soon. Um, my question, I guess would be, what's the what deal with the energy getting cut off to Eastern Europe? Like is, uh, Germany and I guess Germany's not Eastern, but Germany, Romania, are these countries going to suffer after I leave? When winter hits, well, uh, you know, in the UK, there was just a projection this week by uh, Citigroup that by January, um, inflation would rise to something like seventeen percent, which clearly is a reverberation of these energy, uh, these like questions around. Adequate, inadequate energy supply, right? Because the, at least according to Citigroup, the inflation is going to be overwhelmingly driven by these drastic increases in wholesale gas prices. Um, so you know all the all the economic uh, forecasters whose uh, you know livelihoods on, on the line right now, um, they're they're saying that at least um, it's going to be affecting uh, the UK to a pretty staggering degree, and I think that probably relates to. You know the um, the dearth of uh, just abundant gas that's now available throughout right. Europe. Yeah. Well, like in Romania, the like the social security here, like their version of it is like fifty euro a month, fifty dollars a month, right? Mm-hmm. So like they really can't afford. It's just like disgusting what this foreign policy is. Um, Rich, I want to say I actually I'm a veteran and I gave an interview with uh, old Jacobin and I shouted out your book. I said, you know, if you want a vulgar Marxist interpretation of foreign policy, <laughs> Tanania is one of the smartest Marxists out there. So we'll yeah. see if they uh, if they if they name shout you in my interview. So you you or they were interviewing you for are you are you famous? <laughs> no, 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 because I'm a I'm a veteran and it was it's actually a guy I met 
who uh, stayed with me during the Bernie campaign. Because um, uh-huh. he's, uh, Bernie's anti-war, you know? So I, I voted for him. And he came from Britain to volunteer for Bernie. So that's foreign influence, right? And uh, he's like, oh, it's been a year since the Taliban went down. I want to uh, interview your thoughts. Um, and they were uh, negative on the war. Did they know? Did they know who I? Did they know who I was? I've never had any contact with the uh, Jacobin people. Uh, he's like a freelance writer, so he didn't know. I, I think I identified you as a uh, a free market transphobe. Yeah, it's the uh, military industrial complex driving this shit. Yeah, not 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 inaccurate. So, dude, I'm old. Like I'm old. Like so, I was in Afghanistan in 2011, which had been going on a while, by the way. Right, yeah. <laughs> but like still was a while ago. Off. And uh, here's a fun story. I was there, and I was like special operations, so they're you're allowed to be like informal, you know. And they have like an open door, like, hey, if you have any uh, comments or like advice for the leadership, come on in. <laughs> so I'm there for like a week, and I'm like, dude, these people hate this fucking government that we're standing yeah. up, yo. Like, but I I really like the thing you posted about the taxes. Like, you wouldn't think the toll on the roads would piss people off, but they really did. So I like laid it out, you know. Like, I got that on Sixth Street, right? When they're saying, like, you know, give us advice, they mean, like, something different at the, for the food or whatever. <laughs> not like, yeah. a, or, like, a minor tactic. Yeah, wow. not strategic <laughs> advice. Yeah, I, like, laid out, like, all the problems. And uh, they got so mad at me, they sent me back. Really? <laughs> like, I, yeah. And they did it, like, in a way, this is, like, they so misread me, though. Because, like, I did, for special operations, your tours are seven months to buy a quarter of it. So I did seven months in Iraq, and then they did 20 days. They rushed me out in 20 days because they knew if I got 21 days, I would get my Enduring Freedom Medal. And, if, and so they got me out of there on the 20th day, so I wouldn't get the medal. They were so pissed at me. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> this is a crazy stuff. Just like, it all came back to me watching the fucking the Taliban just working out our gyms. Like, some of those gyms I worked out in. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Yeah, it's good. What's actually what's actually good? That's actually a, a, a revealing anecdote. In that, it's pretty solid proof of just the fundamental pettiness of the people who are at the top of the crafting war policy, and yeah. knowing that they're so motivated by pettiness is actually a window into like their larger strategic failures. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. look at the. Yeah, you look yeah. at how these Afghan. I mean, I'm not surprised by that anecdote at all because you look at these, you know, Afghanistan, these generals and how they write. It's all in this. It's all like has the um, appearance, like the pretension of being open-minded, looking for answers, trying to figure out what's going on. Right. Like oh, especially the coin people, dude. Yeah, like, you exactly. mentioned the coin that people. Is... They're the fucking. You know, exactly we're not like what I was these thinking. knuckle yeah. draggers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what it is too, like, like you know, like I don't want to get counts too conspiratorial here but right like if you win a war or you quit a war you know the people you wrote about in your book rich they don't get money <laughs> you got to keep it going you know yeah i think they wanted to win but the, the worst thing they uh the worst thing would be you know the worst thing would be the, the worst thing would be not keeping it going the worst thing it would be losing right i think they want to i think they want to keep it going they want to win then they want to keep it going and then they, yeah, they just, want like they slow want, they progress so they look like winners but you yeah. know enough to keep selling shit. Well, don't you don't you dare su- even dream of suggesting that a similar incentive is currently operative as to U.S. policy in Ukraine, because that means you're against democracy or you're somehow corruptly in league with right. Putin. 
Oh, dude, I was watching Blogging Heads, and even Tom Friedman was making sense. And, like, you know shit is on its head when Tom Friedman is, Friedman like, had a very good Warren. article in the New York Times, uh, you know, a couple right. months ago about the, about the Russian Right. Guy, yeah. He was talking to Robert Wright about it, and he was like, I'm like, it's Tom Friedman, the guy I used to read about, like, you know, we used to all make fun of him. He's, like, the now sane person before policy. Like, everything is insane, dude. Well, because he, he has... You know, high level access to Biden administration officials. I think even Biden himself invited Friedman for lunch sometime, you know, earlier this summer. And so, like, if he's one of the few outlets for some actually you know, raw information as to how these policies are going, then, you know, whatever his uh, checkered history, you got to, you know, we're in a position where we have to rely on him for the, the real story, sadly. Uh, well, there's also, like, maybe he's. Uh... You know, he'd give him a tidbit like, oh, actually, uh, Ukraine's a little corrupt, you know? And it's like a signal <laughs> yeah. to people. Yeah. So it's just like, whatever they're trying to signal, I don't know. Well, he had a column around the time that Pelosi did, was uh, about to leave for her, yep. you know, super yeah. important Taiwan Re- trip. Reality, and he... will, reality will decide these things. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a glimpse, right? If Ukraine does nothing, if Ukraine never advances, I think you can, you can see that, really, that, that Ukraine is corrupt and nothing works there could take off. You know, if Ukraine advances, it's going to be, you know, they're the greatest things to slice bread and we were right all along. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I think reality will will take care of this if Ukraine is, is as bad as Friedman suggests in that article. Yeah, and one thing Friedman suggested in that, ty- that article that was mostly about Taiwan, but he had like this, you know, pretty bombshell aside that Biden administrations have severe doubts about like, just like, the fundamental competence of Zelensky. Um, and so I guess, you know, the, given the circumstances, it does make sense for Friedman to be the one to actually relaying this information. Cause it's not like people would think that he otherwise had some bone to pick with Zelensky, right? Or he has some pre-existing bias, uh, on, you know, in that direction. Um, so, you know, yeah, but we do, we, it's a, it's a, it's a sad state of affairs when Tom Friedman is like an oracle of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Scratch that one off. Yeah. All right, thanks, Matt. Let's uh, our, our old friend. Yep, Mr. Mass- mathematician, Mr. Romania, followed by Mr. Mathematician. I, I'd like to ask you guys, like, what what's your preferred foreign policy? Um, I, I know a little more about Richard, but like, if you were the guy who's completely in charge of American foreign policy, um, you know, what would you do? Would you like do anything to stop China from invading Taiwan or for Iran to get a nuclear weapon or? Or, or, you know, what would you do, basically? Like, would you go to full isolationist? Would you be, like, mostly isolationist? Would you, yeah, just, just, what, what do you think the optimal American foreign policy is? Well, one thing I would want to do is rehabilitate the term isolationist, because even people who are accused of having isolationist tendencies, because they're, like, marginally less, uniformly pro-intervention than some of their, you know, contemporaries, they'll insist that they are absolutely not isolationist and they resent being saddled with that label and it's this horrible slur. Okay. Um, I, I, I would only, you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to give you like a full policy program that I would institute if I were president because I don't plan on running, but I think it would be helpful to not make it so that isolationism is just perceived as this automatic derogatory term because for one thing, no isolationism has existed in the United States really since World War II. So like who are they even 
in vain against when they accuse I, I, people. I think, like, yeah. whether I place it is, is good or bad. I'm just saying, I was just using it as a, as a completely descriptive term. I was not saying it's good or bad. I'm like, would, would, would you sell weapons to no countries? Would you sell weapons to some countries and not other countries? So that's a concrete question. Like, which countries would you sell weapons to if you were running the U.S.? I, <laughs> were I not running the U.S. or not, I would want to basically wipe the slate clean in terms of the current foreign policy posture of the U.S. across multiple domains and, like, start with first principles and see what makes sense because the problem with foreign policy and richard has written about this and spoken about this is that it functions so much on just mindless institutional inertia that like the the premises underlying why for example the u.s is so intimately intertwined with ukraine are never even reevaluated at like the root. It's just assumed that it, this is like the natural state of affairs yeah, yeah. in the universe I, I, that the U.S. is going to be like the prime mover in Ukraine. So I would want to wait. The first thing I would do, I would think, is 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 you know, you know, uh, press, you know, control all delete and just you know start writing the code <laughs> from the ground up. Okay, um, you know, I generally agree that a lot of this is bureaucratic inertia you know i generally think that we have too many bases and all of this shit but but i you know i i think okay maybe richard will give a, a different answer like richard um are there some countries you would sell weapons to in other like you have a concrete subset of the countries on earth in mind that you would sell weapons to and ones you wouldn't i mean i think i would i think i would let i would think i would let companies sell weapons abroad i guess i mean i don't know if i would i would necessarily Stop it! Um, you know, I, so I, 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 I just build a nuke and wanted to sell it to like some country. No, nah, nuclear, nuclear, non, you know, tanks and normal stuff. I mean, uh, you know, nuclear non-proliferation is is generally a good thing. Yeah, I, I think we should have much less interest in sort of the internal affairs of the politics of other countries. I think it's you know irrelevant to us. I think we should encourage. You know, I think we should encourage healthy policies and sort of healthy cultural attitudes. I think that we, I think that like the stuff and like, I think that there is more to be gained from cooperation um, than there is from conflict. It's very, it's very hokey. But How about like, like fighting terrorists, you know, like uh, there's some terrorists in the Sinai. Should we help the Egyptians and the Israelis fight them, sell them weapons? The, te- the threat of terrorism to the U.S. is, you know, microscopically small. No, I, I, I agree with that. But, um, you know, you don't need to help. I mean, you don't need to help them. They'll 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 fight the terrorists right. uh, on their own. I don't think they need help from the United States sure. uh, I mean, to I do that. Weapons, gladly, though. I mean, why not? But uh, like, you know, would you sell weapons to South Korea? I don't know. You know, they have a draft. Uh, we, 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 you know, well, one reason I wouldn't one reason I wouldn't run for president is because I don't want to preside over a whole defense industrial base that, you know, gets profits by the exportation of like engines of death. Like that's not really something that would ordinarily <laughs> fit into my moral calculus. So I think I would just avoid it wholesale. No, I, I agree that, you know, we have all these like bases and all, and we do all this, like, you know, I, I agree with the general premise of Richard's book, but I still think, you know, there's some, is, is your question just, well, well, who do you want to send well, sell weapons to? Is that the big, is that the big question? I mean, I mean, yeah, you know, I would sell. Weapons I don't think it's that big. I don't think it's that big of a, I don't think it's I that big of a question. 
I mean, I mean, you know, some countries are hacking us and others are I mean, you know, we're, we're, well, we're, I mean, there's usually a reason. There's usually an underlying hostility. of you know, there's, 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 there's Yeah, but I mean, uh, those other countries have their same foreign policy bureaucracies and, you know, the U.S. Like Iran and North Korea are good examples, right? Like they're always going to view the U.S. as their enemy just because it's a retarded property of their regime. But the same way that like the U.S. regime views Russia as an enemy for the right. I mean, I mean, so they're always. Gonna I, I don't think so. I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, Iran made a nuclear weapons, you know, deal with the U.S. I mean, the, the Iran was following it. The U.S. did it. The U.S. pulled out of it, and then the U.S. you know, uh, you know, bombed. Uh, uh, you know, the U.S. is trying to overthrow their ally in Syria. I don't know if Iran is impeccably, permanently hostile to the U.S. I think we were trying to we were trying to go in a different direction under Obama, and then it was the U.S. that. Uh, pulled back from that, so I don't even I don't even know if that's true. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree that you know that, that we should have, try to have friendly relations with everyone, but I don't think that you know just given the nature of like some regimes like Iran and North Korea, I don't think they'll be totally. Um, but okay, friendly. But um, so Richard, do you have like w- which countries would you sell weapons to? Like, you mind? Do not. You don't care. I, would, I think I would. I would sell weapons. I think I would just let the, let. I would let the their private companies. I think I would let them sell weapons pretty much to to who they who they wanted. I think there would be less need for weapons if the U.S. didn't uh, interfere in other countries' foreign. But look, I don't think other other countries. I don't think it's a big question because the the countries they what they want is. Um, you know what they what they want is they want to be self sufficient in this area. I mean, come to think of it, no, I I think it would have to be very complicated. I don't have, I would have to learn more about if there are technologies out there that we could provide to countries that they couldn't get elsewhere that could make war more likely. You know, it's an empirical question. I don't know. In fairness, selling weapons seem low. So we just in, fa- well, in, in fairness, though, in fairness, though, Richard, I mean, it's not as though the weapons export industry is one that at least as it's currently constituted, you can just say, Oh, let the market do as it will. And then, you know, whatever private company wants to sell to whatever company, whatever foreign country, just let them do it because there's a whole, um, regulatory apparatus that requires all kinds of approvals throughout multiple lever, uh, layers of the federal government to even authorize yeah, the more I think an arms sale. Yeah. So like you, you would, if you were president, you would be involved well, whether you like it or not. He's letting me do what I want. So oh, okay. I mean, I could theoretically just let them do whatever they wanted, but no, now that I, I mean, the more, okay, but you know, the benefits of, yeah. If a U.S. company wanted to sell like heavy weapons to North Korea, we would just let them do it. I mean, I guess no. The benefits of this are probably no. It's better, probably better just to wipe your your hands clean of this stuff because I, I don't think it's I don't, I don't think it's good. I think it's just you know it, it, I think it's uh, uh, it's probably more likely to go wrong than go right. And so yeah, I right. think I, well, I think that's... thanks always keeping us on our toes as usual or as always given his name. All right, uh, Andrew, hello. Hello, gentlemen. Um, so. Just one really quick comment on the last thing, because I thought it was an interesting question you asked. It's, uh, the topic of the national interest is usually uh, brought up in, when it relates to geopolitics or foreign policy, and I always find that it's this very nebulous thing that's never defined and usually doesn't have any like real relation to what would be good for the population of the country necessarily compared to whoever happens to run the country like who actually defines what the national interest is is a giant question that's just never addressed ever in american politics probably most politics yeah and the the one reason why i was sort of hesitant to accept the premise embedded in that theoretical question that the previous caller posed was that like i I don't want to just accept the you know 
unalterable legitimacy of even the sheer existence of these weapons exportation industries. Like if you actually read about, I, I did, I've done more and more reading about the uh, run up to World War One, and there was a theory circulating at the time that seems pretty untargeted to me that the um, kind of the infancy of the construction of these defense industrial bases in the different countries that were on the precipice of war that alone is what lurched the countries into war like the the industries themselves in other words were like a proximate cause of why the war was initiated so you know if it, it's a, therefore it's not just a matter of like which countries are you going to send weapons to and which aren't you it's about it's something more fundamental about this the very existence of those industries in the first place yeah, what did you read? What what what, what said that about World War One was driven by these uh, weapons manufacturers? You said there was a book or something. Uh, I, I I'm I don't have the the name of this this book in front of me now. I have to find it. it was, this was a couple uh, months ago. I'll uh, I'll look it up real quick. Okay. Um, if if you had any thoughts on that, Richard, I, I was just going to ask one more thing. Make now, what was the question? What was the question again? Just about the concept of the national interest uh, as it relates to foreign policy and how the national interest is not well defined in yeah, American that's, politics. Yeah, that's, that's, un- that's unquestionably true. Sometimes you know people will be talking about, oh, you know, we have to do this because this country is aggressive. We have to defend ourselves. Then you say no. You know, they don't really threaten you at the U.S. And then they will change it and they will say, oh, they, uh, you know, they're they're threatening our, our friend and ally, they're threatening the rules-based international order, and then you'll, like, maybe disprove that, and then they'll say something about the economy, something about values. Right. Um, so it, it is very slippery. It's, like, very, you know, it's very, um, it's, like, hard to, like, even pin them down, because every time you, like, argue about one thing or refute one thing, they change to something else. So, yeah, that's a very frustrating, something I've always found frustrating. And if you think in, like, straight lines, if you aim to be a rigorous thinker, Right. Um, and foreign policy analysis often isn't right for you. That's the opposite of politics these days, is straight thinking. So, um, the, uh, the comment and question I had was, one, I'd like to challenge the notion that because there's no um, frontline movement in the Ukrainian war right now, that that means it's a stalemate, considering yeah. the apparently overwhelming amount of firepower advantage in artillery that Russia seems to have over Ukraine right now. And the slow movement is largely, from what I'm hearing and reading, a very deliberate uh, strategy by Russia to move it at a slow pace, just saturate wherever they're getting contacts at with artillery, and then move forward very slowly because it loses less of their manpower, considering they like 20% of their overall military is dedicated to this right now compared to Ukraine. So... I just, you know, we don't know the true casualty numbers. We don't know the number of wounded and dead. So considering that Ukraine hasn't really managed to stop Russia and they can't stop the artillery bombardment, I don't know if a fixed or slow-moving front line necessarily translates to a real true stalemate. What do you think about this? So if you go to that Understanding War website, I go to it, um, understandingwar.org, and it's Institute for Study War. You know, they're very biased. They're neocon. They're, you know, pro-Ukraine and all that. But they so, but you can trust them when they say the Russians are advancing. Um, and every day, I, I look at, I just at least give it a, almost every day. And um, they keep saying that Russia is advancing. And they're, they're small, they're small advances, right? They never say Ukraine is you know, attack. So they'll say made incremental games or they try to attack, but they, but it's never Ukraine going on the offensive. So 
it is like so let me just pull it up right here this is today's understanding course let me look at the bullet points russian forces conducted limited ground attacks northwest and northeast of slaviansk uh, northeast and south of bakhmut uh, northwest of Donetsk. R- russian forces conducted a limited ground attack in northwest kharkiv oblast uh, russian forces delivered ground attack in northwestern kherson oblast ukrainian forces targeted russian military a- assets and ground lines of communication okay we've seen that um and then the, you know a bunch of political uh stuff um mm-hmm. so you know that's the summary like from today today's effort it's and it's like that every day that's like, yeah know. exactly and so i think you're right it is very slow um but uh, you know if there's any momentum at all it's the russian stuff but at the same time the ukrainian what Phillips o'brien says is the ukrainians you know the ukrainians also have a long-term strategy which is to uh uh destroy russia's ability to um uh, reinforce, uh, bring in uh, weapons and material, um, and then you know launch an offensive much later. It's just on a different uh, right. schedule. So th- that's the thing. You know, they have an argument that Ukraine has a long-term strategy too. What else can they say though? If they're not winning the moment, <laughs> it's like okay, we're not well, winning now. Guys. I'll pay the bill later, guys. Trust me, the counteroffensive is coming. Like I've heard this for a while. So if it's true, that's one thing. But you know, and. The goal of Russia isn't necessarily to take as much territory as they can before winter. They've explicitly stated their goals to just destroy the Ukrainian military, which I think is a consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, one last thing. Have either of you seen the Kiev Independent article? Suicide missions, abuse, physical threats, international legion fighters speak out against leadership's misconduct. No, that's in the Kiev Independent, aren't they? Like a very pro-Ukrainian. Uh, they're, they're very, they, like, yeah, they're, they're yes. propagandists, right? And they're saying and, that... Uh, yes. This is very interesting. Have you seen this, Michael? Uh, I'm sorry, repeat that. I got distracted looking for this uh, article. It's called uh, Merchants of uh, Death by H.C. Engelbart. <laughs> um, this was written in the 1930s. It was considered like revisionist at the time as to the um, origins of the First World War. Um, but it's a you know the most comprehensive review I've seen of how you know these these industry these industries basically made inevitable the why don't you confrontation. post it in the, why don't you post it in the yeah chat? yeah I will I will yeah somebody I'm sorry posting, yeah, uh, yeah Lake, sorry Lake Masters uh, article from 2006 on Lou Rockwell on this topic which is interesting okay uh, Andrew re- 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 sorry repeat what the no Kiev problem. Independent published yeah you'll be surprised at this uh, it's okay. called suicide missions abuse physical threats. International Legion fighters speak out against leadership's misconduct from August 17th, so only eight days ago. And let me just uh, preface this with, here's their disclaimer at the top of the article, because this tells you almost more than the article does. Mm. The Kiev Independent is publishing this investigation to shed light on the alleged abuse of power in the leadership of one wing of the International Legion, a legion created for the foreign fighters dedicated to defending Ukraine. The members of the Legion's unit say that they reported their commander's misconduct to Ukrainian law enforcement, the parliament, and President Volodymyr Zelensky's office, but saw no proper reaction and thus turned to journalists as a last resort. Soldiers who pointed at the problems within this unit of the Legion claim they received threats for speaking up. For their safety, we do not disclose their identities. And then you can go on to read this article. It's pretty bad. And the fact that the Ukraine, uh, the one interesting point I'd like to just bring to light is that they they say that the International Legion is about 1,500 people, or was, and it's split into two sections. One is controlled by the Ukrainian ground forces, the Ukrainian military's ground forces. The other is controlled by the Ukrainian GUR, which is essentially their military intelligence. And this is the section that has issues. And 
they go into detail about what those issues are. And there's interestingly like a Polish mobster posing as a fucking colonel who's just, this is like apocalypse now. It's so surreal. And so anyway, it's really interesting. But the point that I found most interesting is that they're blaming the GUR unit. And with the heels of Zelensky firing all these heads of the SBU, the head of the SBU itself, and then regional heads of SBUs, some of them are killing themselves now. Uh, and now the GR, GUR is being blamed for problems in the International Legion. And like you said, it's surprising that Kiev Independent is reporting this. So I was just wondering, since you haven't read it, what your surface take on this is. Do you think it's really this bad, or is this some kind of political uh, war going on that the Kiev Independent is pulling strings for someone, or is it so bad that they just have to report this? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I, have, I, I, I will read it um, after this call. Um, but it does bring to mind what that journalist Seth Harp found when after he traveled to Ukraine. And I, I, I think you're familiar with him, Andrew, because you've cited him to me before. Um, but Seth Harp, uh, who, do I know he's, that uh, I think you probably do. Um, he, he, he's, he has done Ukraine war reporting for like Rolling Stone and he did a Harper's sure. article, um, Okay. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's he's reported in Syria and stuff before, and he's actually seems far more sensible than the average correspondent who would be uh, tricking out to a war zone to you know make a name for himself or something. And uh, basically, the the impetus, as far as I can tell, for his going to Ukraine earlier on in the war on you know for Harper's to write an article for Harper's magazine was to look into this international legion and to see you know if there was really anything to it or if it was just essentially a PR move by the Ukraine officials who kind of duped the western media into making it seem like there was this you know massive international surge of support for Ukraine to kind of you know rouse just uh, wider support for the war effort and to make it seem like there was this internationalized conflict and it was not a, you know, wasn't just merely about Ukraine and Russia, but was... If about, I could quickly you know, interject, fi- yeah. Zelensky directly is responsible for the formation of the International Legion at Zelensky's office as well, yeah. which is important well, to know. Well, well, when I was in Poland, uh, Richard, I think you might remember this, I did a little substack based on a happenstance encounter I had with a guy at this uh, processing center right over the border in, in Poland from Ukraine, uh, who was an American who was from New Jersey, who was just kind of milling around. And uh, he had been in these fairly massive airstrikes at the International Legion sort of base in uh, Yavoriv in, in far western Ukraine. And uh, he actually told me that he, that the name of the body that he was at least purportedly a member of was actually called the Zelensky battalion. Um, so anyway, yeah, so it was, it was specifically an PR initiative by Ukraine, by uh, Zelensky rather. But anyway, the conclusion that Seth Harp ultimately came up with, if you read his Harper's article, and he's also talked about it on some podcasts and stuff, was that the international, international region was, legion was more or less non-existent. Like he, he tried to find proof that it was anything like as it was being portrayed in Western media as this triumphant group of courageous, you know, volunteers who were so moved by the fight for preserving democracy or whatever. And, um, aside from a small handful of highly specialized units, 
that maybe had some, you know, former special forces guys. It really just didn't exist in any any meaningful form. So, um, you know, I'm not surprised that, at least according to the Kiev Independent, um, whatever whatever remnants did exist, uh, you know, were sort of the most rife for various kinds of abuses and corruptions. Certainly, it seems that, and uh, I've seen reports from uh, comments, I don't know, I haven't verified them, but they've said that it's not just the uh, International Legion, this Polish guy, because it, the Kiev Independent kind of, the story points that this Polish Mafia guy is the source of most of the problems, but the confusion and the suicide missions seem to be ubiquitous throughout the entire Ukrainian military uh, not just this Polish mafia guy who's also just profiteering off of this, apparently, which uh, just the thing that I found most interesting was that the Kiev Independent even wrote this. And it made me think yeah. either it's so bad that they can't hide it. And it's really true and that uh, they're receiving threats and stuff. And the Kiev Independent wants to get ahead of it before they go to other mm. international press. Sexual maybe. harassment. Wow. And, and wartime. Who would have? Looting. <laughs> would yeah. Have <laughs> it's pretty bad overall because they're trying to even loot Ukrainians, you know, yeah. like <laughs> looting their own soldiers at gunpoint. So yeah. they're meet, they're meet, the Kiev Independent is me tooing the uh, international. League. <laughs> right. anyway, uh, thanks, Andrew. Let's. Thank uh, you. Proceed to Will. Will, you're up. Hello. Will, are you there? Willie Shirtman. Will, uh, if you're not familiar, you have to unmute yourself by pressing the little microphone icon okay, on the bottom. Okay, I figured it out. Got Sorry it. for yeah. that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just want to say shout out to Richard for publishing my uh, anti-IRB piece on CSPI. Um, yeah, yeah, you're times. welcome. It was a great essay. IRB is uh, an evil thing, and people not not in academia don't know what that is. What is IRB? <laughs> yeah, oh, I, it's the most dystopian thing you can imagine. So, uh, Michael, imagine that before you had to publish a newspaper article, um, mm -hmm. you had to get permission from your university just to go interview people. Um, so, you know, you, you tell them, oh, I'm going to go to Ukraine. I'm going to talk to a dozen people. I'm going to ask them a bunch of questions. You submit your questions in advance. You talk about, like, oh, what are the possible harms that this could produce? So it's like it's a modern-day censor board. That's academia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's insane. I ignored, um, it by, I ignored it, by the way. They can uh, – I just ignored it. You 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 know, you, technically you're supposed to do it, but if you don't, sometimes you don't get caught. But, and yeah. what does the acronym stand for? Is it international uh, – uh, or, no, it's not institutional review board. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, huh. yeah, it's one of it's one of the craziest things out there. Yeah. Sounds, and, like, uh, it sounds like a pleasant group of folks to have to deal with to do anything. <laughs> so this fellow, yeah. he he wrote an essay on it. It was for the C for CSPI. It was one of the one of the winners. It was like third place or something, right? It was a third place. Uh, I think it was honorable mention or something. Okay, I don't know. Honorable mention, four so like or fourth yeah. place, pretty much. Um, and so people could find, uh, yeah. Willie's essay on the uh, CSPI website. Go ahead, Willie. You have a you have a question about um, Ukraine or anything yeah. else you've been um, talking about tonight? Not so much about Ukraine, but um, more of a I guess a joke question, which is, you know, there, there's there's virtues and vices of being a little bit autistic, right? Um, or maybe being like disagreeable versus not disagreeable. So if you could, you know, both of you, if you could just adjust your personalities, you know, 
choose the big five. Uh-oh. Which one of those would you bump up or bump down in a big direction? Like, just choose oh, one of those traits. What a fun question. <laughs> Richard, you go first. Uh, big five? I like myself a lot. Um, I've gotten used to myself. Um, Richard I does really... seem to be a big fan of himself, which is an admirable <laughs> trait. I don't know if I have the same level of enthusiasm for myself, so I'm sort of jealous. Yeah, anything I don't like about my personality, I really try to change. And I sort of, you know, zeroed in on some things that I I like. Um, what would I change? Openness. No, I'm, I'm good. Conscientiousness. I'm good on that. I'm good on... Uh, I don't know. Always lower the neuroticism. Always want to go down. I'm not high on it, but you always want to be low. I think that's a. I have a Substack on this that this week. That's. I think it's a pathologically uh, uh, maladaptive trait. So yeah, I would. I would go down on the neuroticism on the big five. In terms of disagreeability, you know, there's. It's funny because when one is semi-prominent as a public figure. I don't even know if I'm semi-prominent. Whatever prominence I have in public, it's, it's automatically assumed that whatever disagreeability you exist in like your public output, meaning if you're talking about foreign policy or you're talking about you know whatever the topical debate is of the day, that disagreeability that you convey somehow translates seamlessly into your personal life as in like your sharply disagreeable just with people that you know and people who you have just personal relationships with. And for me anyway, I tend to be like the antithesis of disagreeable in private affairs, probably to a fault. Um, So I'm not even really sure how to modulate that metric to kind of optimize it because it's so uh, like bifurcated, at least in terms of how people would perceive it, you know, in these different sorts of settings. Um, but yeah, I guess I would, I would want to tune down neuroticism as well to the extent that I have it. I don't think I'm especially neurotic, but you know, I, I think you know, getting into sort of ruminative, overly introspective spells where, you know, you're sort of irrationally fixating on some perceived flaw that, may or may not exist, but whatever rumination you're doing doesn't actually fix the flaw. Um, that's, I think, uh, something that it's, always so should be aspired a, a to be. Funny, a funny anecdote is, I don't know if you two have read Tyler Cowen's talent book recently. Um, yeah, there's just, some interesting I stuff in there. I just interviewed Tyler about it actually yesterday. Oh, nice. Well, there's a funny moment in there where he he's basically trying to find like kind of undervalued public intellectuals or undervalued creatives. And he has this part about how high neuroticism might be good for like being a moral entrepreneur. Um, and I think, I think there's something to that. Um, and I think like there is some interesting behavioral genetics work that suggests like maybe, you know, propensity for bipolar might have some upsides in some ways. So yeah, it's always, but I agree, you know, from a personal perspective, being less neurotic is probably, you know, usually a good thing, but I'm Maybe neurotic about my society. work. If I have an essay that I want to finish, I mean, I'll keep looking at it. I'll keep looking for typos. I'll be keep trying to perfect it. But that that's good. I mean, but mm-hmm. if somebody like makes fun of me or something, I don't go cry about it. And you know, that's the sort of the neuroticism I don't don't have much of and would like even less of. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Will. Uh, let's go to Jenny. Hey, Jenny, you're up. Thanks. I wonder if you guys have heard about Russia setting up for military tribunals in Mariupol. And I dropped a couple of links in the chat about this. 
And nope, is it the Azov people? Are they going to do that? That's where they're going to start. But the, the interesting side of the story to me was the response from our State Department yesterday. And I shared uh-huh. a link from that as well. And, and they just uh, very confidently condemned the so-called tribunals. And they call them illegitimate, mockery of justice, strongly condemned them. I mean, they could not be more clear how they feel about these uh tribunals so i just wondered what you guys thought well didn't didn't Zelensky also say something like if russia moves ahead (laughs) with these tribunals uh, which he i think he called show trials or something like that that it would you know foreclose the possibility of any negotiations not that there seem to be any real negotiations underway right now at least in terms of like the overall trajectory of the war i mean they have done these now we're narrower negotiations mediated by Turkey around like the grain export issue in the Black Sea or whatever. But, um, you know, Zelensky did seem to suggest that these tribunals would be like some sort of red line for him in terms of whether any further negotiations could proceed. Although who knows how much stock to put in any one, any given thing that he ever says, because he's been all over the map. So, yeah, Yeah. well, it's just an interesting development in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something to be on the lookout for. Uh, thanks, Jenny. Let's go to uh, Spencer. You're up. Do you think there's any value to Charles Murray's approach that he takes in coming apart to document sort of the group differences in crime and intelligence and whatnot? Well, uh, what is there that has any chance of... Go ahead. Now, what was the, what was the question about coming apart? Do you think sure, there's any uh, value no, in the sorry, approach Murray takes in coming facing apart? Facing reality, yeah. sorry. Oh, okay, sorry. No, uh, in facing reality and documenting group differences, will that have any effect on the culture, or is it just all law and and? Uh, do I think Charles Murray will have any effect? I, I, I don't. I, facing reality, I don't. I mean, I've read Charles Murray's books. I didn't read that book. It sounds like all his other books. I mean, they are, <laughs> you know, they seem repeti- sort of repetitive at this point. I like coming apart to the. You know, the bell curve was years ago, but these latest books, they don't seem to be uh, offering um, much new. Um, but, you know, I think it's, you know, it's arguments that there are, you know, these uh, you know, group behavioral differences are are correct and they're important to sort of face. Are we are we coming? Are we as a society, you know, moving towards that? No, we're, we're not. We're in, uh, we're we're in more, you know, reality. We're in more denial of reality than ever. So. Um, all right, uh, Richard. I actually have to go right now. Sorry to cut things off a bit uh, sure. abruptly this time. I, let me, uh, but, yeah, let me, but, actually, my friend here um, is uh, Misha. I, I know. Misha. Okay, yeah, we Who's can do one more. Here? Let's do one more then. Uh, as long as he's still there, Misha, are you there, my friend? I Misha, uh, there's Misha. Yep. Yeah. I, I, you're right, Michael. For one more question. Yeah, yes. yeah, you're up. We hear yeah. you. Are final oh, caller. Sorry to everybody else. No. Brilliant. Michael, my, my question's um, aimed at, at you, actually. I, I don't understand um, your position recently. You expressed kind of calling uh, Finland's actions as, as aggressive. I guess, um, you know, I kind of look at where Finland sits and, and, it, and it's kind of history, and it seems to, to defend itself against Russia any way possible and to kind of contemplate like a Finnish um you know, ludicrous and not vice versa. So I guess keen to hear, um, you know, you explain your characterization of, of Finland's actions as, as aggressive. 
Yeah, well, I don't think I've used the word aggressive, but I know what you're getting at. I mean, there was a whole hubbub recently where I described Finland's the policy choice undertaken by the Finnish political class, including the prime minister, you know, who was in the news recently because she had these, you know, she had this footage released of her partying. That wasn't really, of course, what I was focused on. But um, I was focused on uh, that. What okay, well, <laughs> understandable. Um, I, I, I made somewhat of a flippant point, noting what seems to be the irony that this young, you know, hip prime minister who has this like hipster aesthetic and goes to music festivals and all this sort of stuff and you know parties. She's also undertaken a historically militaristic action than joining NATO. And a lot of people objected to my use of the word militaristic because they assume that it's inherently pejorative. And I guess, you know, much of the time that term would be used, it is meant in a pejorative way. I really meant it only in a descriptive way uh, in that it just seems to me obviously militaristic to seek to join a military alliance. And it's also historically militaristic in the case of uh, Finland because they're abandoning their official policy that they've held to since World War II of, of military neutrality. Um, so, you know, if, do you, would I call it aggressive? I, I wouldn't exactly use that term because I don't think it really fits what I'm trying to convey about it in this respect. Um, it, it's weird because there's, there, there's, on this issue, there seems to be this barrier erected so that you can't even make like definitional or descriptive observations about what is plainly the case, which is that in seeking to join NATO, Finland is engaging in a militaristic action because NATO is a military alliance, right? I mean, they're doing so to fortify their military capacities in some respect or to gain this security umbrella afforded mostly by the U.S., in a military sense, so they're the the, the policy action itself is militaristic. And I'm, I'm not mm. sure how that could really be denied. Uh, insofar uh, as they're just joining a military alliance, like what else would you call it? Sure. Uh, I guess if it's purely descriptive in that way, no worries. I guess you know you've got an admirable history of kind of criticizing and, and talking down aggressive actions around the world. And I um, the way I read read the piece was you know your, your note was a bit different around kind of criticizing it i guess it's you know finland's position of being kind of invaded by the soviet union and being like the reluctant partner of the germans you know and then kind of it's it's awkward position since and it's kind of been standably i, I guess I, I sort of thought you know um Hey, Austria, Misha, I think you're uh, you're breaking up a bit, or maybe it's my connection. No, he's coming maybe in now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I take your point, Misha. I see why what I said there could be misconstrued, or why it could be taken as like overly uh, derogatory. Um, and you know, in fairness, I do think that there is something lamentable about a country abandoning its doctrine that seems to have served it well for decades, that being, you know, military neutrality, which somehow it could have maintained over the course of the entire Cold War. But today, all of a sudden, the circumstances are so radically different because Russia invaded Ukraine that that, that policy has to be abandoned. I mean, in the case of Sweden, 
their official policy of military neutrality had been in place since Napoleon was in power, literally. So, you know, the early ni- uh, 19th century. And, and, you know, these are, these are militaristic uh, actions because they're joining a military alliance that is functionally commanded by the United States and which has engaged in, you know, expansionist designs uh, throughout even just the very recent past. I mean, I don't know why it's so, so controversial a contention to say that NATO has expansionist, an expansionist record, given that not only is it just expanding its membership size in the geographic territory on which it um, has member states, but it's also you know, had forces in Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, it's also, it also, you know, led the intervention in uh, Libya. And even just this past uh, June, when I was in the NATO su- at the NATO summit in, in Madrid, uh, they formalized their new strategic decree where now they're expanding into East Asia and not in that they're, you know, taking on any new member states in East Asia, right? But they're saying that, their military resources as a collective are going to be increasingly marshaled against uh, China to counter their China's allegedly you know, aggressive or uh, destabilizing actions. Um, and, and, you know, NATO needs to do this in order to preserve the rules-based international order. So now Finland is going to be directly party to these initiatives. And so, you know, whatever Finland's history uh, with the Soviet Union or what have you, um, in 2022, it's taking a manifestly military action by dint of joining a military alliance. And yeah, I do think that there is some, you know, darkly comical irony in this, you know, prime minister has this like party girl, you know, cool you know, spirit, uh, image being the one who's, who's shepherded that into fruition. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I reckon, um, and I understand why, you know, someone could take the piss given... She's, you know, this party girl or whatever. I'd, I'd take her any day over, like, the decrepit bureaucracy that's kind of, you know, you know, the potato-headed ruling class that we, we've got in Australia or, like, you know, the, the, or, or in, like, you know, or, or in the U.S., you know, the whole geriatric kind of aged care facility that is Congress there. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'd take Misha, her just a, just an aesthetic under su- the U.S. military umbrella. You're just aesthetic supremacist yeah, like me. You're just, you're just looking at her right. like, uh, you know, whatever the policy here is, uh, I'm, I'm behind it. Give her the nukes. Give her the nukes. <laughs> Let her bomb, bomb the shit out of me. I'm in. That's all I'm <laughs> Well, you know, the uh, gerontocracy that now prevails in the U.S. is makes uh, even uh, less than ideal uh, alternatives maybe seem like the ones you'd want. But uh, her age really wasn't really the main point for me. It was just yeah, this no, amusing yeah. contrast. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Misha. No, thanks, Richard. Uh, apologies to others who wanted to chime in. I'm going to cut it. I mean, we have gone an hour, 40 minutes plus, so it's not like I'm cutting it especially short, but not going to go to the bitter end tonight sure. because uh, – sure. Other, other no uh, need things to on the agenda. Mike, you've, got a, you've got a life outside of it. <laughs> Not really. I'm just making it up to make it seem like I'm real busy. All right. Uh, take care, everybody. See you soon. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you.